0: Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Revelation chapter 4, and we'll do two parts to this section in Scripture And the title of the day's message is, Where is God? As you see, every week we give you prophecy videos about what's going on in the world. There's more going on outside than just Bakersfield. The whole Middle East is on fire. We have North Korea. We have the rise of Gog and Magog, of Russia and Iran and Syria and Turkey and all these places and these players positioning themselves for things that are predicted in the Bible, like the Gog and Magog invasion, the Psalm 83 invasion of Israel, and just the way the entire world is going. And so you see in a five-minute snippet of news clips, that happened this week. That's unprecedented, that kind of stuff. We are seeing things unfold in our world we have never seen before. And the reason I say that is because these are biblical things that are moving into place. So what you have inevitably is a convergence of prophecies all lining up, whether that's dealing with the great apostasy or the Middle East being on fire, a one-world government, a one-world currency because of economic issues, or even the tracking system that could track every person on the planet. It's all here. We're not waiting for anything else to be developed. The players are in place. And so we see that on a global scale. And if you weren't a Christian, you might, you know, if you're just the regular Joe Blow out there, where is God? Or maybe even Christians even say that if they don't understand prophecy, they might say, where is God in all this? We typically as Christians can understand things from a prophetic standpoint. Okay, I get why the Middle East is on fire. I understand why we're going toward a global government. It's all predicted. Most Christians can accept that understanding that the world's going to get worse. It's not going to get better. We're not returning to 1950. America has changed. And I've told you that over and over again. And most Christians are okay with that. They understand, okay. um, I get that, Brandon. But here's what starts happening. It starts hitting them personally. No one is losing sleep tonight or last night over what Putin is doing. No one's really losing sleep. We understand there's a lot of things going on, but no one's losing sleep. That's not what causes Christians to say, where is God? What causes Christians to say, where is God, is when stuff starts happening personally to them. And they start thinking, well, hey, I'm a Christian. I'm serving God. I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Why is this happening to me? Why am I losing my job? Why am I losing my economics? Why am I losing my retirement? You saw in the prophecy thing, they're expecting a big economic crash to hit. We don't know when, but it's going to hit because bubbles were created. The stock market's overvalued. It's going to eventually come back to normal. So if you have stocks, it's going to crash, and you're going to lose things. You have to realize that, just like in 2008. But when you lose your job, when you have... Things going on in the government, whether it's in Sacramento or it's in Washington, D.C., that's affecting you, like unfunded liabilities of our of our debt. Not to mention the $20 trillion, but the over $100 trillion worth of unfunded liability. How are we going to pay for that? The economy's tanking. You just can't keep rolling like this. Can't keep spending like this. It's going to affect you and I at some point in time. And you see that, and then other people are saying, no, no, I'm not so much worried about economics. I'm worried about my health, Brandon. i got a disease, man. Or I have an accident-related problem. Or i got cancer. Or I'm, I'm fighting blood clots. Or I'm fighting this in my life. That's what my main concern is. Or even I'm dealing with socialized medicine. I can't get the kind of care that I want. It'll end up killing all of us. Or maybe you've lost somebody. Death is hitting you right now. You've lost somebody significantly close to you, and you don't know what to do. Or now we're seeing all these natural catastrophes happen in the world, the fires in Santa Rosa and the hurricanes going on. And like you saw in the video, this year is the most expensive year in natural disasters. And you know what? No one's seen what's going on other than Christians. You know what? They're claiming, oh, it's global warming, global this, global It's Nonsense. God sometimes uses natural disasters to get people's attention and to wake them up that a storm is coming, worse than a hurricane, worse than a fire. The whole world will be set on fire. A storm will envelop the entire globe. Wake up. But no one's getting that because Al Gore keeps saying global warming. Nonsense. But maybe people are being impacted by that. Do you wonder... If the people in Santa Rosa, if the people that had these natural disasters, do you think that some of them are at least saying, what is God trying to say? Maybe I need to get right with God. Maybe I need to accept Jesus. Or if they are a believer, do you think they ever say, man, I need to be obedient. I've been living crazy. I need to stop this. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But those things personally impact us. And then we have relational conflicts and losses. I've told you before, I think, I think I said this last week, radical dysfunction is happening in families. Radical dysfunction. Serious stuff that needs serious care. It's not like in the old days. I mean, these issues have always been with us. Ones and twos and threes and fours. But now it's just, just a pandemic of radical dysfunction. People don't know how to behave in relationships. They're completely unaware of how to deal with other people and radically selfish and self-absorbed. So people all around us, even today, are having marriage struggles, family issues, serious, serious problems. People are losing friends. People are struggling with emotional struggles, depression, anxiety, all this other stuff. And people are having spiritual problems. Constant false doctrines. Constant apostasy. Our society is gone. And so in the midst of all this, When it's happening directly to us, we start saying, where is God in my life? What is he doing? Why is he allowing this? Hey, I need a miracle right now, but the miracle doesn't come. And Christians will say, I've been praying, but all I hear is crickets from heaven. I hear nothing. It's the silence of heaven. And I want to know where is God? Why did he allow this? Why did he take on my mate? Why did he allow me to get sick? Why did I lose my job? He could have prevented it. He could have stopped it. I serve him faithfully. I'm not in sin. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. Why is he letting this happen? So people start feeling confused. They have anxiety, stress, fear, They see their problems. It's beyond them. They can't fix it. But they start blaming God. And all they're saying is, look, Brandon, what I'm asking for is not much. I just want my children just to straighten their acts out. I just want my husband to stop being a jerk. That's all I'm asking for. I'm not asking for a miracle. I just want that to be done. I just just want to feel better. I don't want to feel sicker anymore. I just want to find a godly mate if I'm single. I just want a better paying job so I can take care of my family. I simply hate what's going on in my life and I just want things to be different. And I'm not asking to be a millionaire. I just want a little bit more money to make ends meet. Is that so much to ask God? Is that too much for him? A lot of those questions are not so much questions. They're statements of protest. They're statements of protest to what is happening to them. And they want to blame God for it. So they find scapegoats. They'll find the pastor to blame. They'll find this person to blame. They'll find this. And ultimately, they'll blame Jesus for it. He could have stopped it. He could get me a better job. Why didn't he stop me from marrying this person? He knew how they were. Why didn't he give me a shaft of light in my bedroom at night and say, don't marry this guy. You're marrying the Antichrist. Why didn't he do that? Well, let me take you to the setting. The setting in the book of Revelation is the setting of the worst time in human history, and it's still future. You will see things you, that is unimaginable when you get through the book of Revelation. It's so much so that Daniel saw pieces of it and he became sick and nauseated. John becomes sick at some point in time in the book of Revelation too of what he sees. Jesus said no person would survive this period of time had it not been cut short. It's the worst time in human history. And what you need to understand is that the book of Revelation is a survival manual for the tribulation saints in that period of time. It is to document what is about to happen. And it is also a book of comfort for them because they're going to ask that question, where is God in all of this? Because from their standpoint, they're going to look around and say, wait a second. It looks like the whore of Babylon is in control. They're cutting our heads off because we don't believe in the whore of Babylon. Or then they're dealing with the Antichrist. It looks like he's in control. Or it looks like Satan is in control, the God of this world, Satan uh, is is masterminding his whole plan through the tribulation. It doesn't look like God's in control. What's happening? There's, there's things all around me. And they're going to have those questions. Where is God? What do I do? How am I supposed to process what's happening? Because these people are going to get their heads cut off, either by the horror of Babylon or by the Antichrist, along with all the judgments. So John is taken into heaven not bodily but by a vision he's on the island of patmos he has just received the messages for the church and we've talked about the church age has ended and john had a rapture like experience into heaven and we talked several weeks about the rapture well now he's in heaven in a vision not bodily but in his spirit he says i'm in the spirit and he sees the heavenly scene for this period of time he actually sees the scenes But he also sees the scenes about God. Now, this is extremely important. Before you get into the judgments of the book of Revelation, it is important that you start seeing a vision of what God is doing to be able to correctly understand things. So John has to be vaulted into heaven to get a heavenly perspective. Otherwise, he could lose it. Otherwise, you and I could lose it if we don't understand the scene in heaven prior to things. Now, here's the deal. The application is for the tribulation saints to see what God is doing, but it's also for us in our application. We're not in the tribulation, but we're supposed to learn from this and seeing in our own personal things that are going on in our life, how are we to view God? How do we answer the question, where is God in my life? When all all hell is breaking loose in my life. Where is God? What is he doing? Is he there to help me? Or is he just some doting grandfather that says boys will be boys and I'm not really interested in what you're doing? This scene is important for us to understand how to deal, how to cope with the issues that we're going through. So that's why I'm going to take two messages to deal with it. Let's go into the text then we start verse 1 to get the scene. We dealt with verse 1, but just to review just a tiny bit, it says, After these things I looked. After what things? The church age. Chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. Behold, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. This is the door that John's going to be allowed into. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here. That's the rapture-like experience. We talked about that. You can get the last two messages about the rapture. And I will show you the things which must take place after this, after the church age, which is the Great Tribulation, the seven-year tribulation. And so he's vaulted into heaven. And again, what's the point of doing this? He must see things from God's standpoint. If you and I do not see our lives from God's standpoint, we will lose it. You will lose a grip on reality. You will get anxiety. You will get stress. You will get overburdened. You will collapse. You will play the blame game. You must see your life from the heavenly scene. Okay? And you must see God. Okay, so the first point we want to go to is this. We see in this heavenly scene the Lord who is in control. That's the heavenly scene. We're going to unpack this a little. We'll take our time through it. It says this in verse 2. Immediately I was in the Spirit. So he's taken into heaven in the Spirit. His body is still on the island of Patmos. So it's almost like a trance-like state that he gets put into. Because flesh and blood cannot go into the third abode of God without being transformed into a glorified body. So he's taken in the Spirit to heaven. And behold... A throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. Let's unpack that. A throne set in heaven. It is a new throne, and it's a picture. The one who sits on it is God the Father, okay? And so the idea of the way the Greek is constructed, this is not the eternal throne of God. This is a different throne. This is a throne that set in place for the judgments of the book of Revelation. It is a judgment throne, okay? This throne, you want to make this note notation off to the side, is the same one found in Psalm 9, 7, where it says he has established his throne for judgment and is the same throne in Daniel 7, 9. I kept looking until thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days took his seat. This is in 7, 9, 7, 13 through 14. And then the other one was Psalm 9, 7. So the idea is this is a throne that is now created. And God the Father, the Eternal One, is now sitting upon this judgment throne. This is important. Showing. Anytime you see a throne, it includes... The message of sovereignty, that I am the one in control of what's about to happen on planet earth. Now, God sits on the eternal throne, and that, again, is a throne of sovereignty as well. It's not a throne of fatalistic determinism. He allows free will to his creatures that he created, even allows free will to Satan and the demons and his angels, and he allows the freedom to his creatures called humans. But he is in control despite these creatures having freedom, which is amazing to think theologically that God is in control of the situation even though each creature, humans or angels or demons, have free will. That is an amazing thought. It's one that you almost can't get your mind around, that God can still be in control with free creatures. Yes, that's how powerful he really is. Nonetheless... He is saying, I am in control of the things that are about to happen. And by the way, the message that you'll see in the book of Revelation, that all people will know it. When they get into these judgments in the book of Revelation, the people during that period of time will know exactly who's bringing the judgments. Because it'll say several times in the book of Revelation, and they blasphemed God for the plague of hell. Or they hid from the wrath of the Lamb. They knew it was from Jesus. They knew it was from God. And they blasphemed him. They shook this at him. So don't think any of these judgments wake people up. They only get madder and angrier. And what is God doing with this? He is showing that humanity does deserve these punishments. It's been thousands of years since Noah's flood. He promised never to flood the earth again, but he did promise, I will judge the world one more time, but by fire. And that's what he's doing, and he's showing that humanity does deserve this over thousands of years of, of spurning his grace. Okay, what does this mean for you and I? Well, several things. It means that God's going to defeat his enemies, he's establishing his throne for that, but for us. That God. Even though he did not cause the problems that happened to you, and I'll talk about that later, of where those problems actually came from, he is still in control of what's happening to you. So in the essence, we have to understand the difference between causing and allowing something. So when God causes something, like in the book of Revelation, he's causing his judgments to be enacted, and rightfully so, But many times what you'll see in the book of Revelation is the free will creature, creatures of the whore of Babylon and the, the false religion and the free will of the Antichrist and what he does. God didn't cause it, but he did permit it. And that's far different than causing it. And you must understand that many, many of the things that are happening to you, God did not cause it. He permitted it. And you have to think theologically straight on that. There's a major difference to understand what happened. I'll get into the unpacking of that in just a bit, but it has to do with free will and how important free will is to his creatures. Talk a little bit more. Okay, so what about my issues, Brandon? I'm dealing with a lot of the stuff you've mentioned. Okay, let's talk about that. The message that you see from the the one taking the throne, the father taking the throne, is that he's accomplishing... His plan and purpose through his sovereignty of free creatures. And he is doing the same thing in your life. You may not like what's happening to you. And God didn't cause what happened to you. But he is using that for his plan and purpose of what he's trying to accomplish in you. And what he's trying to get out of you in a lot of ways. So, in essence, the takeaway from this is the things that are happening to me, I need to let God have those and that that he's in control, and I need to stop manipulating the situation. I need to stop manipulating other people to get them to do what I want them to do. Because if God is in control and this is part of his plan and purpose, you're getting in the way of that if you're trying to manipulate stuff in your life. You have to quit trying to lie to people to get them to do what you want them to do. You have to quit bribing people to get them to do what you want them to do. You have to quit being filled with worry and anxiety, wondering how your family and your life will go if something doesn't get removed. You have to quit trying to control everybody and everything. You have to quit being a control freak in essence. And you have to give people the freedom to do wrong. That's a hard one. In business, you have to quit climbing this ladder of success by worldly methods. If God wants to promote you, he will. Just whatever you're doing, do with all your might and let him promote you. But don't play the game like the world does. What are we saying is, is this, you must sovereignly understand that God is sovereignly in control of your life, that he's permitting things to come in and come out, not that he wants to hurt you, but he's wanting to help you. You have to see that God is a helper and trying to get you through this rather than him being the punisher. He's not trying to punish you. And that's what we have to get straight in our life. So some basic understandings is this. Let God be God and you stop being God. Or at least trying to act like that. Understand that God is in control and we're not. That doesn't mean you're not responsible with your life. But is he in control or not? That's what the message that John is seeing. He's in control of this. He knows what he is doing. And we're supposed to follow His lead and trust Him. So here's the deal. Whatever's unfolding in your life, go through the open door and quit trying to force open closed doors. If it's not there, quit banging your head against the wall and asking God to keep opening that door because He's not going to do it. Go with the plan. Because here's the deal. What'll happen? You will start to protest what God is allowing in your life and then you'll get stuck and you'll get stuck in depression. You'll get stuck in anger. You'll get stuck in anxiety. And then eventually you'll have a heart attack and die because you're so stressed out. That's how it is. You'll shorten your life because you're not letting God in control. If you're a control freak, let it go because that's going to kill you one day. That's the message, first off, that John sees, that God is in control. Let's see the second thing. The second thing he sees is that the God of Israel who reveals unrighteousness. The God of Israel who reveals unrighteousness. I'll deal with the Israel thing in just a bit, but let's deal with the unrighteousness that is revealed. So how is God helping you and I? How is he coming to our aid? He's going to unveil unveil unrighteousness. That's the idea. Now, verse 3, we see this. And he who sat there, God the Father, was like a jasper. A jasper stone in our modern-day equivalent is probably a diamond. It's a translucent rock. Now, in your translation, it says that he who sat on there was like a jasper. But there's better translations that say that the actual it's the throne that is made of jasper that he sits on. Because God is invisible, uh, he wraps himself in Shekinah glory of light, so it probably is a reference to the throne. The throne is a diamond in appearance. It's a clear rock. He calls it a jasper. In the same context, if you jump to verse 6, it also says that before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal again another translucent rock what is this the sea of glass okay so you have the throne that's made out of crystal or diamond and then before the throne around the whole throne room of god is this sea of glass or clear diamond for the pavement okay what's the message on that It's a reference to the tabernacle and to the temple, because we're actually in the temple at this point in time in heaven. If you remember the tabernacle that Moses set up, it had a laver, and the laver had water in it. And all the priests would have to go in there before they did their duties and wash their hands and their feet before their duties. It was a ritual cleansing type of thing. And then in Solomon's temple, he created what was called the molten sea. And it was a large laver with water, and then all the priests of the temple washed themselves in doing their duties. The laver in the molten sea pictured the cleansing of the Holy Spirit on the believer through the Word of God, that the Word of God would cleanse them. So it was a picture of that. We're cleansed and renewed. Our minds are renewed by the Word of God and we're cleansed and purified by the Word of God. They had a picture of that. okay. But in heaven, what I want you to notice, what John is seeing, is that it's not water. It's, it's no longer a molten sea. It's no longer a laver with water. It is solidified. It's, it's diamond, but it's solidified rock, which is a message that those who are in heaven have been permanently cleansed. There is no need for constant washing because the inhabitants of heaven are permanently sealed in their perfection. Because once you're in heaven, we no longer have the sin nature. We're solidified in glory and we're purified. So it's a picture of the state of heaven of people that there are no people that need to be cleansed in heaven because they wouldn't be there. It's a state of perfection. Okay. That being the case, what is the message? There's multiple, multiple messages with the appearances of this throne and the sea of glass. Well, the reason the throne is clear, like a diamond, and the the solidified rock of the ground is clear, is so that it reflects and refracts the Shekinah glory of God, which is light. He created light, and he actually envelops himself in light because God is invisible. But the manifestation of God, when you, if you were to see him, you would see light. Okay, the purpose then is to reflect that light as it goes out, and you'll see it later. is like a it creates a rainbow appearance as it goes through these prisms of these these translucent rocks. Okay, what's the message? It's the light of the Shekinah that reflects out. It's a message that God is about to unveil how wicked man is. And he's going to do it through the rest of the book of tribulation. Jesus said it this way. Light, the Shekinah glory, has come into the world. But men love darkness rather than light. For their deeds are evil, and for fear those deeds will be exposed. So the idea is the Shekinah is, is illuminating all the unrighteousness that's happened on the planet for thousands of years, and that God is now going to deal with that. Jesus said it another way, if you remember in the Gospels, he said it to the multitudes. He said this, this is in Luke 12, "...for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed." nor hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have spoken in the inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. Now, he wasn't talking to believers. He was talking to the multitudes. So that He was talking primarily to the world, and he was telling the world that everything you've done is going to be uncovered. I see all, and I'm going to uncover everything. So one of the reasons for the Great Tribulation, the seven-year tribulation, is to uncover the sins of humanity. Now let me give you an example of this so you can kind of grasp what this this light being reflected off of the, the stones means. Right now, God is showing the church how really the culture is. Have you noticed that? Have you picked up on this? For the last few years, you can't Help, but see how bad the media is. What God has done is pulled them from the darkness into the light. And I think he's done it through using Trump. Again, I'm not a big Trump supporter or anything. He was better than Hillary Clinton. I've told you that before, right? Then getting Crooked Hillary or whatever in there. She would have sailed us right off into the UN with the globalists, right? So is the lesser of the two evils. I get it. But notice what I want. Trump is no saint. We understand that, right? But look what he is revealing about things. God is using that to show you and I, you're not going to be able to trust the media. They're lying every time they speak. They're speaking the native language of Satan. You start finding out the swamp in Washington. You start finding out there's all kinds of major problems here and there. And it's revealing it. We're getting a front row seat of how bad Hollywood is. This Harvey Weinstein thing, he's just the tip of the iceberg on what's going on in Hollywood and politics and academia. That's just the tip of the iceberg. Why is God allowing us to see that? He wants you to know I'm helping you to see how bad the culture is and why I must judge it. Like I said last week, it's unreparable. We're not coming back. You and I are not going to sit here and fix academia. You and I are not going to fix politics. We're not going to fix what's going on in Hollywood. They're gone. They're not coming back. And God wants us to see that. And he wants us to see that he is the only source of truth in our lives. He is the one that will navigate us through it. Don't trust what the politicians say. Don't trust what academia says or anything else. Trust him. And Jesus says, I will navigate. That's a blessing. That's an act of grace and mercy for us. And that's what he's going to do even into the tribulation for the tribulation saints. He's going to reveal the Antichrist to them. Why do you think he says his number is 666? Why do you think God does that? He's not doing that just to to play games. That is an identification marker for the tribulation saints to be able to identify who the Antichrist is. Because they will be able to take his name, put it in Hebrew, and it will come up to 666. And they say, aha, that's him. That's an act of grace. But he's going to reveal that to them. He wants to help them get through this awful period of time. And he's doing the same thing for us. Okay. What's the application then to take away from this? Well... If God is going to reveal unrighteousness, and that's how he's helping us, and that's why all these things are happening to us, so we can see really what, who's on our side and who's not, then you and I have to stop being Captain Justice. And what do you mean by that? Well, you have to wait on God to reveal how unrighteous people are even around you. Hey, I know most of you right here in this room are dealing with unrighteous people in your family, friends, neighbors, and they're constantly bombarding you with stuff, right? And they're unrighteous. They're ungodly. They don't love Jesus, right? And they're messing with you. And you know what they're doing? Every time they mess with you, they attack your reputation, don't they? They're messing with your reputation, saying you're this, you're that, you're this, and they're making up lies about you. I know. I get it. People do it to me all the time. I get it. But you have to be able to wait on God to vindicate you. That one day God will say, I'm going to uncover what people were doing to you. I'm going to reveal them, but you better wait on me. Because if you get into the mode of being Captain Justice, and I'm going to right every wrong in my life, bless God, they're not going to say that against me. I'll go fix that. You're going to get yourself in trouble. If you try to vindicate yourself, What God is saying, if they're verbally attacking you, turn the other cheek. Let them continue to verbally attack you and call you all kinds of names. So be it. Take it on the chin like Jesus said. Now I'm not talking about physically attacking. I'm talking about what they say verbally about you. They're going to try to ruin your reputation. So what? God will vindicate you. So here's the deal. Don't try to right every wrong done against you. Don't worry about your reputation. By the way, if you're a Christian, your reputation in the world is gone. They hate you already, so get used to it. Accept it. (laughs) You're in denial if you don't think they hate you. They do. People who want to be in Captain Justice mode can't forgive. They simply can't forgive. So the command, forgive one another, that's not even done for them. They can't do that because they're holding the grudge. i got to get them back, Brandon. You don't understand what they did to me. I'm going to get them. Look, just let... God deal with it. Vengeance is his, right? Not ours. Remember Jesus with Pilate? I'm giving an illustration of this. The week before Jesus was crucified, obviously he's the Passover lamb, right? And every Passover lamb would have to be inspected for four days. And what the average Israeli would have to do is bring a little lamb. They would have to buy a lamb if they didn't have one in their herd. And they would have to bring him into his house. And they would look at that little lamb and inspect him and make sure he didn't have any spot or blemish on him. And they would look at him. And they have to do this for four days prior to the Passover. This is the week before Passover, before they would kill the lamb. And, and so the time of inspection was happening. And then at the end of that inspection, the fourth day, the father of the house or somebody in the house would have to say, The lamb is clean. It can be used for Passover. It has no spot or blemish. And then that would be used on Passover, and they would spill its blood, and that blood would be used for Passover. Okay. Jesus is the Passover lamb, and you recall from Sunday to Wednesday, he is being examined by the religious leaders. Every day, he is going back and forth. And you can see this in the Gospel of John, battling with them theologically. And they're examining him. And for four days, Jesus wins every argument, right, theologically. He's the Messiah. He's God. But then comes Wednesday. He should have been declared by Israel clean. We find no spot and blemish in the Messiah. But they were not going to accept him as Messiah, as you remember, because they were rejecting him. So Israel refused on Wednesday to say that Jesus was clean refused, would not admit he's clean. They just started making up stuff about him, right? They lied. They, when, you don't have, when they don't have anything on you, they're going to make something up, right? Okay. So God's going to vindicate him. Now you know he vindicated Jesus with the resurrection, but most people don't see the vindication even prior to the resurrection. Especially about his reputation of being clean. Because he always would say, which one of these things do you want to accuse me of? Right? So God vindicates him with Pilate. Amazing. He goes in front of Pilate, and Pilate examines him, as you recall. Remember the trial of Pilate between him and Jesus, and they have a dialogue. Pilate comes out three times and says, I do not find any fault with this man. Did you see that? Three times, Pilate, a Gentile Roman who doesn't know who he's dealing with, Declares Messiah clean, Israel. If you will not declare my son as clean, I will have a Roman Gentile declare him three times to your nation that he is clean for the sacrifice of Passover. Bingo. The point I'm trying to make is: if you wait long enough and don't take matters into your own hands, don't be Captain Justice. Let God vindicate you, you will see amazing things how he vindicates you. But you have to have enough faith to wait on him. And that's what he's telling them. I will vindicate you, just hold on. Third point about God that John sees. That the God of Israel who will make all things right again, not only will he reveal unrighteous, he's going to put it all back together. He's bringing the bubble back to center. All the wrongs in your life will be righted. Everything is gonna make right again. He knows what he's doing. So he's trying to help you out. He's gonna unveil things. He's gonna now help you into making all things right. So what are the, some of the things that you're going through are his efforts to make things right again. You and I did not deal with things early in our life properly. I wish we would've. I wish I could've. So now what he's got to do is take us through this whole path of making things right again. And it's not a magic pill. It's not a magic prayer when he says, and you just say, change me. He doesn't do that. He says, I have to take you on the path of learning what you should have done the first time. And I have to reteach you because you handled things in a worldly way. So we've got to go a long way. Will you please stay with me and trust me on this path? Because I need to get you where you need to be. And you're not there yet. That's a hard one to swallow. But the whole point is I'm making things right with your life and with the world. We see this in verse 3. And a Sardis stone in appearance. Now the throne, so it's going back to verse 3. The throne is not only made out of diamonds... It's made out of a Sardis stone, or Sardius stone, however you want to pronounce that. Stardius, a Sardius stone came out of the area in Turkey of Sardis. It's a very precious stone. It was fiery red in appearance. So imagine this throne, this judgment throne, is crystal, but then in the middle, intertwined in the crystal, is this fiery red color on God's throne, a fiery red color. Huh, interesting. Blood red? Yes, blood red. What does that mean? Well, first off, it means that he is the God of redemption, and the God of redemption shed his blood for you and I to make all things right. He said in the book of Revelation, when we're in the New Jerusalem, behold, I make all things new. I'm going to do this for you, but it's in the future, and I'm going to make everything right. And one of the ways I did this is I died for you, and the red in the stone should remind you of the blood shed for you to make all things right. But also, the blood red throne also symbolizes God's wrath and justice. Again, it was the shedding of the blood on the cross, right, that bought your and my redemption. But it was also what satisfied the wrath of God. For in Jesus the wrath was poured out on him on the cross for you and I. You know that. That's Bible 101. That's why he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because at that point, God the Father was putting all of our wrath on him. And he was taking it. He was experiencing hell right there on the cross for you and I. But don't miss the connection of the color to wrath. Don't miss the connection. Because here's the deal. We can do it God's way to make everything right through Jesus Christ. Or if you decide to stand before God without Jesus... He will deal with you one-on-one in wrath. You can either have have Jesus take your wrath or you're going to take the wrath. But someone's going to take the wrath because you and I deserve it. Now, because we're in Jesus, Jesus takes that for us, right? But for the rest of the world and the people in the tribulation who blaspheme God, they're going to take their own wrath, the wrath of God is actually poured out on them. This is connected to Daniel chapter 7 when Daniel sees the fiery throne of God in judgment. It is a fiery throne of wrath. Daniel connects it to wrath. So, you can see how the blood and the wrath pour—you know are both intertwined in that. But let me add several more dimensions to this because it's multi-dimensional. The Sardius stone... And the stone of jasper have to do with Israel? How so? Well, let me show you a picture. Maybe this will help you out. This is a picture of Israel's high priest in his high priestly garb. Remember, he would have the breastplate of the twelve stones of Israel, which represented the twelve tribes of Israel. Remember that, okay? And all the tribes were represented on his chest in the breastplate because he represented all of Israel when he did his high priestly duties. The Jasper stone is the tribe of Reuben. The Sardius stone is the tribe of Benjamin. Now, why is that significant? Reuben is the firstborn. Benjamin is the last. The throne is telling you in its colors that I'm the God of Israel, the first and the last. I represent the first and the last tribes, which means I encompass all 12, or I should say 13 tribes, including the tribe of Levi, together. See, by putting the first and last stones together, he represents all of Israel This is significant to the Jews, us as Gentiles, maybe not understand this so well. But when they see those stones, they instantly would recognize, oh, that's Reuben. Oh, that's Benjamin. What is the message he's trying to say to Israel? Israel, I am working on your behalf now. These judgments that are coming upon the Gentiles are in relation to how they treated you. Because the Abrahamic covenant is still in effect, ladies and gentlemen. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And in the tribulation, one of the reasons is to judge the Gentile nations for how they have treated Israel. You see right now, even in chapter 4, once we're out of the church age, chapters 2 and 3, instantly he goes back to Israel. It's all about Israel and how the Gentiles are treating her. And he is saying, I'm for you, Israel. I'm going to help you. Now, you and I both know he's going to squeeze Israel too. They're going to be put through the vice grip so they can accept Messiah. But all of it is for Israel's purpose, for them to accept Messiah. That's the point. What's the point of application for you and I? He's willing to put his beloved people, the Jews, who don't know Messiah right now, into the vice grips of the whore of Babylon, into the vice grips of the Antichrist to get them to do one thing. I need one thing from you, Israel. I need you to accept my son so you can all be saved. That's why I'm putting you through this. It's bad, but to think that it's going to take that To get Israel to that point, yes, it does. Daniel chapter 12 says it's to break the power of Israel, the pride of Israel, the self-reliance of Israel to get them to accept Messiah. That's how much it takes. What about us? Will God do anything it takes to get someone saved? Yes. That's the most precious thing to him. And then as a believer... Will God put you through or allow difficult trials to get you from point A to point B? Oh, you better believe he would. He's not a neglectful parent. He wants his children to grow and to learn. He doesn't want them muddied up in their sin, dragging with them a bunch of baggage I want you free, he says. You're carrying with you too much burden. Burdens of sin. I want you free from that. So I will put you through the vice grip of life, make things uncomfortable for you, to let go of this nonsense. You better believe he will do that. You better believe, because he's doing it for Israel. Now, more about this throne. Notice that it's Reuben and Benjamin. Benjamin. Do you know what Reuben means in Hebrew? Behold a son. Do you know what Benjamin means? Son of my right hand. The throne of the father is named in commemoration to the second person of the Trinity. The Memra in Hebrew or the Logos in Greek who became and put on flesh and became a man, and you know him as Jesus the Messiah. The throne of the Father is saying, I have a son who will do this. He will not only redeem and provide, but he will also be the one who executes the wrath. Isn't it interesting? They're on Messiah's throne in Israel today. Think about this. There on the Temple Mount, where one day Messiah will have his throne in his temple for a thousand years on David's throne, sits a mosque defiling the Temple Mount. And on that mosque, around the rim of it, says, God has no son. Yet in heaven, the throne of God says, I have a son. He's the son of the right hand. He's my unique son. And he is setting everything in order. And all they can do is shake their fists at him. But he says in Psalm 2, I laugh at them. What a joke they are. Trying to prevent my son from taking his throne. What a joke. One more thing. One more thing. Just, it, it, there's, it's, it goes deeper and deeper. It's the perspective of history that John sees. The jasper is a clear stone, and Benjamin is a red stone. From our perspective, you're given that order. The jasper comes first, and then the red comes second. But did you know in the Old Testament, it was the exact opposite. Whenever the stones were mentioned, it was the red stone that came first, and then the clear stone came afterwards. So in Old Testament, red, clear from the New Testament, clear red. It actually, the stones focus in on a focal point of one point in history where the red was, where the blood was spelt. From the Old Testament's perspective, they had to go through the red first to get to the glory. From the Perspective of believers in the church age, we're already in a position of victory and glory. We look back at the red. So both points of history pointed towards the middle stone. Isn't that amazing? Which is exactly how the Bible is laid out. We look backwards to the cross, they look forward to the cross. And the stones represent that, that that was how God was going to make all things right. Just jump to verse 5. Stay on the same thing with me. And from the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. The idea in this is a storm is coming. The portents of judgments are about to come down on planet earth. And this is ascribed to Psalm 29, 1 through 2, 29, 3. All the idea that God's voice is a lightning storm, an obvious reference to his power and his judgments coming. That's what we see there. And then we jump to verse 5. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. This is a reference to the Holy Spirit. It's a reference to Isaiah 11 with the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit. And in this particular passage, that the seven lamps of fire are burning before this judgment throne, it's highlighting a particular ministry of the Holy Spirit, the ministry of judgment. Judgment. Now, he convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He is telling every person right now, judgment is coming. A storm is coming. And people are ignoring it. They're not listening that a a bigger storm is coming. The storm of the tribulation is coming, and no one's getting a grip on that. Okay, so everything is about this coming judgment to set things right. What's the application before we get out of here? You and I both can understand, okay, he's going to set things right in the future. I got it, Brandon. I totally get that. He's going to set everything right. I get my life back. I get everything that was taken from me back a hundredfold right. Then what am I supposed to do now? How am I supposed to interpret what's going on now? Well, first of all, you have to understand that there's a plan for you to get you to that spot. So you have to work the plan. He's working the plan currently to help you. Everything that's happening to you is to help you, and you have to understand that. If you doubt for a moment that God doesn't have a good moral purpose for what you're going through, you're going to have a lack of faith. You're going to fall. You will stumble if you doubt that. That's Romans 8, All things work together for good, of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. If you doubt that, you will see it evidence in your life by being manipulative, by being worried, by trying to do things on your own. And you won't trust God on, on how he's working things. Okay, so I got that, Brandon. Okay, then so what am I supposed to do with all these bad things happening to you? Well, it's simple. You need to create a pie chart. I know it sounds crazy, but the way the Bible says that the reason that you're dealing with what you're dealing come from three areas. And you must understand how they fit in the pie chart. The first area... That's affecting you is the fall. That sin has caused a broken world system. That what you're going through perhaps is accountable to the fall, and so quit blaming God. The fall happened because He gave us freedom to disobey Him, and now the world is broke. The world is bent. We have hurricanes, tornadoes. People get sick and die. People get diseases. When you see someone with a disease, when you see someone die, or you see a hurricane, that's not attributed to God. That's attributed to the fall. And what most people don't want to do is embrace the fall. Because that's reality we live in. And most people don't want to do that. They protest the fall. Well, if you protest the fall, you won't be in reality. You have to understand the world you're in. And this is where we're at. That's the first thing that might be happening to you, so keep that in mind in the pie chart. The second thing that will happen to you about why you're going through what you're going through is sin caused by others. That's the other category the Bible gives. So what you're going through right now may not be associated with the fall. It may be because of the sin of other people. And those people might even be dead. But some of those people that are the sin of other people might include Satan and the demons. They're still there too, by the way. So what you're going through might be because of some irresponsible person, some neglectful person, someone lied about us, someone was mean to us, someone was apathetic, someone was violent to us, someone abused us. That's part of the pie chart. And three, the sin by us. What did we do to contribute to the current problems and trials that we're dealing with? What did we do? Are we going to have any share in that? You see what God is doing? He is saying, don't blame me for what you're going through because I'm actually trying to help you. And you're using me as a scapegoat. What you need to do is create a pie chart in your life because these are the only three categories in the Bible. And you need to figure out is how much is this a cause to the fall? How much is this a cause by people who did bad things to you? And how much did you cause? And if you have your chart, you might have an 80, uh 10% here, and a 10% here. Who knows? But you have to start thinking in those terms, how are those three categories affecting my life? And then if you get that straight, you actually can function correctly. But what Satan wants you to do is start blaming God. And God's saying, I'm not in the pie chart. I'm not even in there. It's you and other people and the fall. I didn't do any of that. Don't put me in the pie chart, God is saying. Keep me out of it because I'm trying to assist you. But Satan said, no, put him in the pie chart, put him in the pie chart, put him in the pie chart. Let me give you an example. Let me show you this picture of this guy and we'll finish on this. Nigel Farrell. Just keep that up there. This is Nigel Farrell. He's from Australia. He was a musician and he has his degree with him, but that's not a, a musician's degree. When he got married, him and his wife, Karen, were planning to raise a family in, in South Australia and just, you know, pursue his musical career and have no problems at all. And then they got a call that she was pregnant from the doctor, and they were excited, and boy, they're going to have their first child, and it's going to be great. And they found out it was going to be a little girl, and they gave her the name Emma. So this was all before she was born. So they were all planning her. They got her room ready. They got everything ready. They were getting ready to go. Man, they were pumped up as new parents. And then she was born, and here came Emma. And it wasn't until about 10 weeks later that Nigel got a call from the doctor, and the call was this. We hate to inform you, but your child has cystic fibrosis. And as far as Nigel and Karen, their world was just completely crushed. They had all kinds of questions, you know, what's this going to mean for her? What are we going to do? But one thing Nigel did not do, he did not blame God for this. He started thinking, okay, this is part of the fall. He actually put it in the right category. This is part of the fall. No one caused this. It's part of the sinful world we live in. This is why she has cystic fibrosis. And he had a, an urge because he, he handled it correctly. He had an urge inside and says, you know what? i got to do something about this. i got to help this little girl. He didn't have a pity party. He didn't have a victimization party. He didn't collapse under the weight of having a child now with cystic fibrosis. He says, i got to do something about this. I feel that God is putting it on my heart. I need to help her. So he prayed and prayed, and finally God gave him an answer. Become a scientist and try to solve Emma's problem. And you know what he did? He stopped being a musician, and he went to school. Nine years later and three degrees later, he's a scientist for cystic fibrosis. Instead of being a victim and bittered up and mad at God, which Satan would want him to do, he turned this whole thing around. He actually became an expert on cystic fibrosis. They have now figured out with stem cells that they can repair the damaged cells of cystic fibrosis And Nigel says, all we need is the funding for it. Do you see the difference? Versus somebody who blames, victimizes themselves, collapses under the stress. Why did God allow this? Versus, I'm going to do something about this. God didn't cause this. He's going to actually help me to help my daughter. Wow. That's how you handle life. And that's what John was seeing. If you see God in the right light, you will process things correctly. God is not here to hurt you. He's trying to help you. Next week, we'll continue on in looking at this image of God so we can understand how to function in our lives. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.